Hey, let me welcome you into the final week. We have arrived at the final week of our study through the book of Revelation. Uh, For those of you who have been a part of this journey over the last couple of months, you know that we have had a very specific, a very intentional strategy in seeking to understand the book of Revelation by simply understanding the eight key prophetic events that the scriptures declare will come to pass. And so week by week, we've been going through uh, each of these eight key events. Today's our final week, so let me take about two and a half minutes at the beginning and walk you through what the previous seven have been. I'm going to go rapid fire. Number one, we began in chapter four by talking about the rapture of the church. This is that evacuation of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, being taken to heaven uh, in the days prior to, just before the beginning of the tribulation period. Number one was the rapture of the church. And by the way, that event is imminent, could occur at any moment. We could go home to be with the Lord before we go home to have lunch. Amen? It could happen. So the, uh, the rapture. Number two, the rise of the Antichrist. Uh, This is plainly taught in Scripture. He's called the beast in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. This is that global ruler that will one day rise to power. In fact, could be even, I I don't know this, but could be rising in some government even today. Uh, Number three was God's powerful witness. God's powerful witness. We studied this in chapter 7 where we were reminded that God has never been without a witness in the world. He never will be. And even during the days of the tribulation, he will have a powerful witness. 144,000 Jewish witnesses and then two uh, Jewish prophets. Uh, Number four, we talked about the coming persecution of Israel. This was in chapter number 12 of Revelation. And this is the time the Bible calls the time of Jacob's trouble, specifically the last three and a half years of the tribulation period when the Antichrist will launch an all-out assault on the Jewish people. This is what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 when he said, when you see the, the abomination of desolation, run to the hills, speaking to the Jewish people, run to the hills because there will be a time of great tribulation. And then number five, we talked about the mark of the beast. This was chapter 13, the mark of the beast, which is nothing more than a tool of enforcement to enforce the global worship of the Antichrist. Week six, we talked about the Battle of Armageddon. We read this in chapter 16. The world's armies gathering together in a place called, uh, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. And then last week, we talked about the second coming of Jesus Christ in chapter 19, when Christ will return with his bride. That brings us to today. We're in chapter number 20, where we're going to consider key prophetic event number eight, and that is the millennial kingdom of Jesus, the millennial kingdom of Jesus. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse number one. You follow along as I read the text, please. Verse one says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And cast him into the abyss or into the bottomless pit and closed him up, shut him up and set a seal upon him 
that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that thousand years, he must be loosed for a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they, those tribulation martyrs, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, uh, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints round about and the, <clears throat> and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and he shall be tormented day and night there forever and forever. We'll stop reading there. Now, I said to you a moment ago that today we were considering uh, key prophetic event number eight, and I called that key prophetic event the millennial kingdom of Jesus. Now, we've just read 10 verses in Revelation chapter 20, and you've noticed probably that those two words, millennial, and kingdom are not found anywhere in the passage that we've just read. But even though those two words aren't found, the two concepts are clearly present in the passage. In fact, the passage speaks about the reign of Christ with absolute clarity. Let me show you two places that we just read where he says it. Look at verse number four. Where at the end of verse number four, he talks about these tribulation martyrs now. And he says at the end of verse four, and they lived and reigned with Christ. So everybody say those three words out loud with me. They reigned with Christ. Now if they're reigning with Christ, then there is a reign whereas Christ is king. They reigned with Christ. And then in verse number six, uh, the, uh, that verse ends in the same way. And they shall reign with him for a thousand years. So there is very clearly in this passage this language that says that there will be a reign, a dominion of Christ upon the earth, a kingdom of Christ upon the earth. And then the Bible in these verses speaks repeatedly about the duration, how long Will this kingdom of Christ last? You can't miss it. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Six times in six verses, the Bible uses this phrase, says to us that Christ will reign for a thousand years. So the question of his reigning is, is, uh, is removed right away. The Bible clearly talks about him reigning. 
And the duration, the question of the duration of his reign is obviously answered as well in the, in the time frame of a thousand years. Unless, unless there is some valid reason that the text would tell us that we should spiritualize the term 1,000 years and that that means something other than what it says that we should not interpret it literally. Now, if you were to go all the way back to the very first week of this teaching series, week number one, before we got into any of the key prophetic events, I introduced this book to you and we talked in great detail on that day about what are the reasons that we interpret the Bible literally. We talked about what are the hermeneutic principles? What are the interpretive guidelines? What are the rules that guide us in our interpretation of Scripture? I won't go back over them, but what we learned on that day is that we are, we are taught, we are guided by the rules of Bible interpretation to interpret Scripture literally. And those rules apply in Revelation chapter number 20 as well. And so, when the Bible says in verses 4 and 6 that some will reign with Christ, it literally means that we will actually reign with Christ. Look at verse 9. When verse 9 talks about the earth and the beloved city, those aren't spiritualized terms. Those aren't metaphors or symbols or illustrations. He's talking about the actual earth and the literal city of Jerusalem, the beloved city. And when verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 7, when they talk about a thousand years, it's talking about an actual literal duration of a kingdom that will last on the earth where Christ will reign and we will reign with him for an actual period of 1,000 years. And so you should also know that when the Bible talks about this 1,000-year millennial reign in chapter 20, intentionally placing it after chapter 19 so that the, the return of Jesus that we studied in chapter 19 is placed before the kingdom of Christ is inaugurated in chapter number 20, then we are led to believe by the scriptures in what would be called a premillennial view of end times. We've talked about this a little bit. Uh, let me give you the definition in case you've missed it somewhere along the way. Maybe you'll jot this down somewhere. Premillennial, when we talk about a premillennial view of Scripture, we simply mean, premillennial means that Christ returns to the earth before the millennial kingdom. Pre, before, premillennial. It means that we're not living in the millennial now. The millennial is yet to come. We are living before the millennial. And in fact, Christ will return to the earth before the millennial kingdom. Now let me just confess and say, say uh, very quickly that there are some uh, who are brothers and sisters of ours and godly men and women who take a different view of eschatology. They, they take a different view of how end times unfold. Uh, there are some people who would say, well, they, are, they have a post-millennial view of Scripture, meaning they believe in a millennial kingdom but they think that Jesus will return to earth after 
the church has ushered in the millennial kingdom. So we will bring about the millennial kingdom by gospel work. The, the, the world will get better and better and better until finally it will be this glorious kingdom and then Christ will come. That's a post-millennial view. Now the problem with that is, is that Paul says that evil men and evil days will wax worse and worse and worse unto the coming of the Lord, not better and better and better. Then there's another view of end times which is called amillennial, the amillennial view. Amillennial, uh, amillennialists believe that there is no millennial kingdom on the earth at all. That the thousand year reign and all the talk of this millennial kingdom is to be spiritualized. It's all symbolic. It's all metaphorical. And there is no millennial, uh, 1,000 year millennial. They say that the church age is the millennium. We're living in the millennium now and one day Christ will simply uh, come. Uh, but there is no actual kingdom on the earth. Christ will come and take us to heaven. So these are both uh, views that people who are orthodox and godly men and women uh, view, uh, positions that they take, um, as opposed to the premillennial. Let me just stop and say what I think is obvious at this point. My view of Scripture is a premillennial view. And that means our church view is that because, well, I get to preach it from the pulpit. Amen? But, but uh, that, this is uh, what we believe that the Scripture uh, teaches a premillennial return of Christ. So here's the prophetic point in your, in your handbook. You're going to want to fill in these blanks. Your key prophetic point for today is this. It is that Jesus Christ will rule the world from Jerusalem for 1,000 years in a kingdom of perfect peace. Jesus will rule the world from Jerusalem for 1,000 years in a kingdom of perfect peace. By the way, I might just stop and say before we talk about the millennial kingdom uh, specifically that, um, or before we talk about the character of it, I should say, that this millennial kingdom that Jesus is coming uh, to bring to the earth, this dominion that he's going to exercise over, the earth, over all the earth is actually hinted at uh, earlier in the book of Revelation. Um, hold your finger in chapter 20 and go all the way back, if you will, to chapter number 5. Go to Revelation chapter number 5 and notice with me uh, in verse number 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, uh, and even beyond. Uh, over and over, chapter 5 talks about a book. In fact, eight times in this passage, uh, this book or this scroll is mentioned. And when you read chapter 5, it becomes very clear that this scroll is of the highest value. It's obviously an incredibly important document. How do we know that? Well, chapter 5 verse 1 tells us that this book is in the right hand of God. And that it can only be opened. It's this scroll with seven seals, you remember? It can only be opened or the seals can only be broken by one who is worthy. This is what verse number two says. A loud, an angel proclaimed with a loud voice saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can break the seals and, and read what's in the scroll? Or in other words, execute what's in the document. The word worthy means who is qualified. Or another way to say it, would be like the executor of an estate who has the authority to carry out what is contained in this document. 
We know it's an important document because verse 3 tells us in chapter 5 that there was a great search made throughout all of heaven and earth, this interstellar search. Let's find somebody who's worthy. And when nobody was found worthy, the Bible tells us in verse 4 that John's weeping. This is such an important document. It has to be executed. And if nobody can do it, John says, it's the end. All is lost. I'm weeping because no one is found worthy. And finally, as you know from chapter 5, Jesus steps forth and Jesus opens the book. And when Jesus opens the book and begins to execute what's in the document, all of heaven erupts in this joyous celebration of hallelujahs and praises that are resounding throughout creation. It's a very important document that God has in his hand. It's also interesting to me that in chapter 5, you discover that, that Christ has the authority to open this book, but his authority to do so is derived from his death. Let me show it to you. Look in chapter number 5 and verse 9. After he steps forward and begins to open the book, verse 9 says, They sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. He says, or, or they say, all of heaven says, you are worthy because you have died. Now listen to me. This statement about his worth or ability or authority to open this document, when they say you're worthy, this is not a general statement about his value as the son of God. This is a specific statement about his authority relative to this document. And what they celebrate is your death, listen, your death gave you the right to open this book. That's what verse number nine says. Thou art worthy to open the book because you were slain. And then the third thing that you'll notice in chapter number five is that the result of Christ executing this document, breaking the seals and opening the scroll, the result of that is the kingdom of God coming to the earth. That's what happens as a result. Look with me, chapter number five and verse 10. Verse nine, he says, you're, they say you're worthy because you were slain and you've redeemed us. Verse 10, they go on to say, and you have made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth with you is the implied uh, implication, of course, with Christ. We shall reign on the earth with you. So watch this. You've got this all-important document in the hand of Jesus, or in the hand of God. Jesus takes it. He has authority because he's died. And when he opens it and executes it, the, execute it, executes it the result is that the kingdom of God comes to the earth. Now, by the way, you might make a note and go read it later, but Philippians chapter 2 alludes to it. It doesn't really allude to it. It says it forthrightly. In Philippians 2, where Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You know this passage? Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If you know that passage, say amen. Do you know the next verse? 
became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because of his death on the cross, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, what Paul said in Philippians 2 is that the death of Jesus established this hope that one day, not just in eternity, but one day in a kingdom on the earth, every person in the world will be saying, Jesus is Lord. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus which gave him the authority to open the book. It is the opening of the book which made possible the kingdom and that kingdom will mean that every person will bow before him. So what is the document, Revelation 5? What is this all-important book? Well, some have said that it is the deed or the title to the earth. That he who holds the deed to the earth, he who has the authority to execute ownership in the earth, is in fact Jesus. Here's how all of this fits together. If y'all are with me on both campuses, I want you to shout amen. amen. Listen to this. In Genesis chapter number one, beginning in verse number 26, the Bible talks about the creation of man. Let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over all the beasts of the field and over all the fowls of the air and let him have dominion. So God creates man and then he says to Adam and to Eve, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, replenish the earth. And then he says this, and subdue it. God said to Adam, I am giving you dominion over all the earth. The word dominion means rule or reign or authority. And then he said to Adam, I want you to subdue the earth, to subjugate it, to bring it under, to take possession of and bring it under your authority. God created the heavens and the earth. Then he created Adam and Eve and he gave the earth, the kingdom to Adam. Genesis chapter one, gave him dominion. In Genesis chapter three, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field and the serpent came into the garden and deceived Eve. She fell into sin and in Genesis three, Adam following her yielded the kingdom to Satan. Satan, by deceiving the man, by deceiving the woman, Satan took possession of the kingdom. In the gospel, in the New Testament, Jesus came and brought the kingdom of God to earth. In the first place, the spiritual kingdom continuing to exist today, but by his death and are y'all listening? By his death and resurrection, he broke the back of Satan. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and he redeemed the fallen sons of Adam and Eve and daughters of Adam and Eve, and he reclaimed the kingdom. And then he went back to heaven. But he said in John 14, I'm going away, but I will come 
again. Throughout the parables, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a man who had a kingdom, had an empire, had a business, had a vineyard, and he went away and left it to his servants. But one day he's coming again. God gave the kingdom to Adam. Adam lost it. Jesus came and reclaimed it and redeemed Adam and went away. And in Revelation chapter number 19, he's coming again. And in chapter 20, he's bringing the kingdom that he reclaimed by his blood on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why, Revelation 5, God's got the deed to the kingdom. God's got the title to the earth. Who can take the deed and execute it and bring in the kingdom? And if nobody could, John said all is lost. But Jesus was worthy. Why? Because of his death and resurrection. That made him worthy. So in chapter number 20, he's coming to bring the kingdom to the earth. Well, what will this kingdom be like? Let's begin by talking about the people of the millennial kingdom. The people who will be in the millennial kingdom. Two questions are commonly asked when we are talking about the kingdom of God on the earth, this 1,000-year kingdom, this literal kingdom on the earth. People usually ask two questions. Number one, who is it that will reign with Christ? And secondly, over whom will they reign? Or who will be the people that will populate this kingdom? Well, here's the answer to the first question. I'll show it to you in the passage, but write it down first. We would say it this way. The saints will reign with Christ. The saints will reign with Christ. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, you have seen this before. We read it over the last few weeks. Verse number 14 talks about Christ returning and those in heaven coming with him clothed in fine linen, white and clean. When Jesus comes, he's not coming alone. He's coming with some people. The Bible says that they are the armies which are in heaven, but they're described in verse 14 of chapter 19 as being clothed in fine linen, white and clean. If you go to chapter 19, verse number 8, speaking of the bride of Christ, the church, to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Who's coming back with Jesus? The church is coming back with Jesus. Jude, verse 14, talks about the fact that Jesus is coming with 10,000s of his saints. And I've already shown you chapter 20 and verses 4 and 6 where it speaks of those who are reigning with him. Now go back to Revelation 4 and 5, and I want you to notice something that you may not have seen as we read through it. Verses 4 and 5 of Revelation 20 speak of two resurrections. Two resurrections. And these two resurrections are separated by a time period of the 1,000 years. So one resurrection occurs at the beginning of the 1,000 years. The second resurrection occurs at the end of the 1,000 years. Let me show it to you. Chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 4. I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded. Stop right there. Pop quiz. If you are beheaded, are you dead? It's just a fact of life, all right? You cannot live without your head on your shoulders. So if you are beheaded, you are dead. I saw those who died for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast neither his image nor received his mark in their foreheads or in their hands and they who had died lived again. What do we call that? It's a resurrection. They lived again. He's speaking, of course, of the tribulation saints. They were resurrected. They lived again to reign with Christ. 
Verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again. There's the second resurrection. They did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Two resurrections, one of the saints at the beginning, a second of the rest of the dead at the end of that 1,000-year reign of Christ. Verse 5 says, this is... Speaking of the resurrection of the saints, this is the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Now, you should know that the first resurrection in Revelation 20, when the tribulation saints are raised, that doesn't mean that's the first resurrection that ever occurred, right? It doesn't mean it's the first resurrection that ever occurred. It just means it's part of the first resurrection, not the second resurrection. In John 5, Jesus said... Marvel not that I said unto you that, there, that the dead shall be raised. He said there shall be a resurrection of the just unto life eternal and a resurrection of the unjust unto damnation. Jesus said this. So he, Jesus said there would be two resurrections. So the first resurrection is the resurrection to life. And so in Revelation 20 verse 5 says this, speaking of the tribulation, saints, is the first resurrection. It doesn't mean it's the first resurrection that ever happened. Pop quiz, did Jesus rise from the dead? Was that the first? Did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Yes, right? So so Lazarus rose, Jesus rose. Uh, at At the crucifixion of Jesus, the Bible says that some of the Old Testament saints were raised. The tribulation began, or before it began, the saints of the church, the church, or the saints of all the ages were raised. All of this is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection includes uh, the tribulation martyrs. That's Revelation 20, verse 4 and 5. It includes presumably all of the Old Testament saints as well. It certainly includes the the, uh, raptured church who had been raised seven years previous to chapter 20, all the way back in chapter number 4. So this is the first resurrection, the saved raised to life. Now, by the way, look at verse number 6. Chapter 20 and verse 6 goes on to say, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and with Christ and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Well, praise God that we are experiencing that grace. That's the first resurrection. All right? So who will reign with Christ? The saints will reign. Saints of all the ages raised and in our glorified bodies, our eternal bodies, we will reign with him. So who will then live in the 1,000-year tribu- uh, kingdom? Uh, if some are alive and glorified, us, the saints, reigning with Christ, then over whom will the church and will Christ reign? Well, write it down this way, then we'll see it in the passage. Saved, everybody shout the word saved. Saved, saved survivors of the tribulation. Saved survivors of the tribulation will enter into and will populate the kingdom age. Saved survivors of the tribulation will enter into and will populate the kingdom age. Let me show you this. Revelation chapter number 20 and verse number 8. This is speaking of the end of the tribulation. So you're fast-forwarding a 1,000 years to the end, not the tribulation, the millennial kingdom. You're fast-forwarding a 1,000 years to the end of the kingdom period. Speaking of the devil, it says he shall go out and deceive the nations. 
Everybody look up here. By the end of the 1,000 years, there are nations covering the earth. The nations continue to exist. They are populated, covering the earth. Verse number 8 goes on to say that these nations are so populated that their numbers are like the sand of the sea. So again, there's this, this great host of people who are living uh, during that uh, millennial kingdom period. Now, at the end of the millennial kingdom, uh, the, the people living at that time will be comprised of three specific groups. And the Bible tells us about those three. I'm going to ask you to go with me back to the Gospel of Matthew. Will you do that? Go to Matthew chapter number 25. And I want to show you a passage where Jesus, uh, in the Olivet Discourse, speaks about an event called the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations. Or another way to say it would be the judgment of the Gentile nations. And this judgment takes place at the uh, end of the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. So Matthew 25, verse number 31. Jesus is speaking, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And the passage goes on to say, to the sheep on his right, he will say, enter into, uh, enter into the kingdom or enter into the, uh, into the uh, glorious kingdom prepared for you. I think I misspoke a minute ago and said this happens at the end of the thousand years. It happens at the beginning, at the end of the tribulation. So he says, to the saved, come into the kingdom. And then he says to the goats, depart from me, you wicked, into everlasting punishment. So there's two groups of people mentioned already. Among the Gentiles, you have the saved Gentiles at the end of the tribulation. These are the sheep set on the right hand of Jesus at the judgment of the nations. And then you have the unsaved who are the goats of this judgment set on his left. Now you'll see it very, very clearly that he says to the, to the sheep, come into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 34, enter into the millennial kingdom. These are living people saved during the tribulation who did not lose their lives but they survive to the end of the tribulation. They enter alive in their human bodies into the kingdom that Jesus will establish. The goats, on the other hand, will be judged and they will die. Now then, there's a third group of people mentioned in the judgment of the nations. You know this story. Jesus says to them, for I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty, you gave me something to drink, naked and you clothed me, in prison you visited me, sick and you, uh, and you healed me, or, or you ministered to me. Uh, and they said, when did we do that for you? And he said, inasmuch as you did it under the least, one of the least of these, my brethren. He said the same thing to the goats. I was sick and you didn't help me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And uh, I, was, I was in prison. You didn't visit me. And they said, when did we not do that? Inasmuch as you did not do it under one of the least of these, my brethren. Three groups mentioned in this judgment. The, the sheep, the goats, and then the brethren of Jesus. The brothers of Jesus. Well, who would that be? Who would the earthly brothers of Jesus be? 
be the Jewish people. It would be the people who were Jewish people living during that time of great tribulation, suffering under the assault of the, of the beast, the Antichrist, and the saved Gentiles, the Jews would call them the righteous Gentiles, those saved Gentiles who protected as best they could the Jewish people, just as during the Holocaust in the 20th century. They protected them as best they could. It was evidence of their salvation. It wasn't what saved them, but it was evidence of their salvation. So you have three groups of people at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, The sheep, they go into the kingdom of God. The goats, they are cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire, uh, Jesus says. Uh, The unsaved Gentiles. And then the Jewish nation, the remaining surviving Jews at the end of the tribulation. Now, by the way, I believe, I believe that in that moment when Jesus comes in in his second coming at the end of the tribulation period to establish his kingdom, I believe that all surviving Jews at that moment will be saved. Now, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say all Jews throughout all history, all Jews that are alive today. I said all Jews who are suffering under the Antichrist persecution, looking for their Messiah to come deliver them. When Jesus comes, I believe they will all, every one of them, will put their faith and trust in him and they will be saved. Why do I believe that? Zechariah 12 and 10 says, in that day I will pour out a spirit of grace and repentance upon the Jewish people. Zechariah 13, 1 says, on that day a fountain will be opened to Israel for sin. Romans eleven twenty six says, in that day all Israel shall be saved. So following the judgment of the nations at the end of the tribulation, at the beginning of the 1,000 years, the unsaved survivors, the goats, are cast into the lake of fire. The saved survivors, the sheep, and the saved Jews who are saved the day that Jesus returns, they will, Jews and Gentiles, walk together into the kingdom of God in their human bodies and begin to live in this 1,000-year millennial reign. Who will reign in that day with Jesus? The saints in our glorified bodies who will live in the kingdom, those who are saved. Every person on the planet will be saved at the beginning of the, of the millennial kingdom. So what will then the kingdom be like? In the time that we have left, let's talk briefly about the glories of the millennial kingdom, the glories of that kingdom. You know, uh, throughout uh, history, uh, dreamers and visionaries and presidents and prime ministers and kings have tried uh, multiple times to create what we would call utopian societies. They've, they've tried to create these camelots where, where men and women live with the highest of ideals and honor and virtue and truth reign. And these, these desires are always dashed. They're they're always disappointed because those kingdoms never pan out and it never seems to succeed. But the Bible talks about a kingdom that's coming one day with that same aspiration. The aspiration where where men and women will live in a righteous world, where where righteousness will reign. And the Bible says that this kingdom that Jesus is coming to bring, while all others have tried and failed, his kingdom will succeed. And there's two reasons why his kingdom will succeed. Number one is because the king of this kingdom is perfectly righteous. 
And he will rule with absolute righteousness. When you have a perfect king uh, implementing a righteous rule, then the people submit to that. And where they fail to, where they sin, where they commit crimes, it is dealt with swiftly by the righteousness of the king. This king is perfectly righteous. That's one reason it it will succeed. But another reason it will succeed, Revelation 20 tells us, is because Satan is bound during this kingdom. I love verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3, where the Bible says, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain and laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Cast him into the abyss, the bottomless pit, and shut him up in there. I know it means he closed him up, but I like the phrase, he shut him up. Shut him up in there and set a seal upon him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years are expired. Why will it be a great kingdom? Why will the kingdom be glorious? Because Christ is glorious and Satan, the enemy of our souls, is bound. This is true in my own kingdom right now, right? This is true in the kingdom of my heart. It's true in the kingdom of my marriage and my my home. It's, It's true in the kingdom of our church. When we let the righteous Jesus rule and Satan is bound from our lives, then we live with a glorious life. Not a perfect life in this world, but a blessed life. But where Christ doesn't reign and where Satan is is actively involved, then we're always going to have problems. What a perfect world it will be when Christ is reigning and Satan is bound. What will it be like? The Bible says there will be peace on earth. Let me just tell you quickly. Micah chapter 4 verse 3 says there will be no war. They will not learn war. Nobody will know how to fight in that day. Then you guys grow up on the playground having to learn how to fight. I remember the first fight. My mama's in the room. I shouldn't say this. The very first fist fight I ever got into in my life. I didn't know how to fight. I'd never fought in my life. But you had to figure it out, right? Because if you, if you grew up on the playground, sometimes you had to learn how to fight. In, in the kingdom, not only are there no fist fights, there's no war. The Bible says they shall not learn war anymore. West Point will close down. All the military schools will be gone. The, the, uh, the tanks uh, out in the field will become, uh, you know, just uh, they'll plant flowers or something in them. I don't know. And uh, there'll be no war anywhere in the world. It'll be a kingdom of peace on earth. Number two, there'll be long life. These who are going into the kingdom, the saved Jews and the saved Gentiles, when they go into the kingdom, they're in their human bodies. They're going to keep living life like we live it now. They'll, they'll marry. They'll have children. The, the, the world will continue on. Now, we won't. Don't misunderstand. We're in our glorified state, but they continue to live in this world. And the Bible says it'll be a time of long life. Listen to what Isaiah 65 and verse 20 says, that during the kingdom, if y'all are listening, say amen. During the kingdom, when a man dies at 100 years old, Isaiah 65, 20 says, well, he'll be just a baby. It does. It doesn't say there'll be no death in that kingdom. There will. But when someone dies at the age of 20, they'll say, oh, what a law, how young. If somebody lives to be 100 now, we go, well, it's a good long life. Can't complain about that. But in that day, it'll be just an infant at 100 years old. You know, by the way, this happened once before, back antediluvian days before the flood. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. If you believe your Bible, say amen. amen. Men lived hundreds of years before the flood. Something changed Uh, uh, in terms of our environment after that. In all likelihood, many things changed about our diet after that. And we stopped living shorter and shorter and shorter lifespans. 
But prior to the flood, men lived for hundreds of years. It would be possible, I'm convinced, for someone to go into that thousand-year millennial kingdom live all the way to the end of it. Because there will be a, a kingdom of long life. Number three, during the millennial kingdom, the curse will be lifted. Amos chapter nine. You remember what part of the curse was on the ground? That when, when sin entered the world, what did God say to Adam? By the sweat of your brow, you'll earn your living. You'll plow through thistles and thorns. The, the, the weeds and the thorns on the earth is part, part of the curse. It's the reason you have to work hard to grow a good garden because it's cursed. The Bible says during the millennial kingdom, listen to this. Are y'all listening? The Bible says in Amos chapter 9, 13, that during the millennial kingdom, the person plowing will overtake the person reaping. That there'll be so much to harvest that before they can get it all harvested, it's time to plant again. That's what the Bible says about the kingdom. Number four, it'll be righteous. There will be righteousness in this world. Zechariah 14 and verse 20 says that during the millennial kingdom, all the bells in the world, all the bells in the world will ring. Holiness unto the Lord. The, the song sung out by the bells will, will not say ding dong, ding dong. It will say holiness unto the, what a day that will be. Holiness unto the Lord. Number five, it will be universal worship of Jesus. Man, when we go to Jerusalem, I love to go to places where we have the opportunity to worship just as with, with our group, with brothers and sisters. And, and then sometimes we're in these places where, the, where there's a lot of Islamic shrines and the Muslims, and halfway through the day we'll always hear the Muslim call to prayer. Where they start calling out that call to prayer and we'll see Muslim folks putting their, their uh, rugs on the sidewalk and bowing toward Mecca. Listen, during the millennial kingdom, whether you live in North Carolina, Jerusalem, Israel, uh, New York City, or Baghdad, Iraq, every person on the planet will say, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's worship King Jesus. Jesus is king of all the earth. That's what the millennial kingdom will be like. The glories. I could give you so many more things the Bible says will one day occur. The glories of that kingdom. Well, then let's close by talking about the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. And really the right way to say it, I think, is to say it will never end. That's what the angel told Mary, wasn't it? He shall be great. He shall be the son of David. He shall sit upon the throne of his David and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So it really won't end. But the 1,000-year kingdom here on earth will just give way to a, to a, uh, into eternity and the eternal kingdom. Now, if you noticed, chapter 20, verse 3 says that Satan would be bound. And then you have this, when we're celebrating the fact that he will be bound, you have this shocking statement at the end of verse number three, which says, after the 1,000 years, he will be loosed for a little season. God's going to let him out briefly. <laughs> Somebody said once, why would God let him out? And I heard the answer given. If you tell me why God let him loose the first time, I'll tell you why God lets him loose the second time. Now, actually, I think there is a valid reason for it. Remember, at the end of the 1,000 years, there, the earth is repopulated. You have all of these people, generations of people living within this perfect kingdom where Jesus is king. And at the end of the, tribulate, or at the, end of the millennial kingdom, Satan will be loose, go out and deceive. And many people who have been living their entire lives in the kingdom of Jesus will then rebel against Jesus. And it will reveal, don't miss this, it will reveal the absolute wickedness of the human heart. If y'all are listening, say amen. amen. You may have grown up in a bad environment. 
You may have grown up in a home where there's generations of drunkenness and generations of addiction and bondage. You may have had a difficult life and you may be you may have issues in your life. You, you may have grown up in a horrible situation and you might have baggage and stuff that you've got. We all, we all have some measure of that. But listen to me, your problem is not your environment. Your problem is your heart. And you can't blame your sin and rebellion and attitude on, well, if my mom and dad in, well, if I hadn't had this and that, and well, if this hadn't happened to me. No, your problem in mine is the problem of the heart because at the end of a thousand years of perfection and everybody knowing Jesus is king, the wicked heart still rebels unless it actively, willfully submits to the lordship of Jesus. That's what you need to do. Stop blaming your sin on others and admit you have a wicked heart. And you need to surrender your wicked heart to Jesus. At the end of this 1,000 year millennial reign, these people will be deceived by Satan again. Those who have been living in this kingdom. Now, just because they're living in the kingdom doesn't mean they're all saved, right? They're just, they're living in the kingdom of Jesus. Not, they haven't given him their heart necessarily. Now, many will have. But those who have not will then rebel against him. And the Bible tells us that, that they will come up to Jerusalem and they will attack and they will fight against him and and a second Armageddon will happen, if you will, although the Bible simply says that God will rain down fire from heaven and devour them. After which you come to verse number 11, where you see the great white throne judgment. The Bible says in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. By the way, that is the second resurrection. In the second resurrection, all the unrighteous dead through all the ages are then raised from the graves. The Bible says the sea, the graves will give them up. They will stand before God and they will be judged out of the books which record their deeds and they will then be cast into the lake of fire or that is hell. And after that great white throne judgment of chapter 20, then you arrive in chapter 21 which begins, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And he begins to describe the glories of this eternal heavenly kingdom where we will live in a new creation with our God redeemed forever and forever and forever. And thus closes the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20. Behold, I come quickly. These things will come to pass. Are you ready? Let's pray together.